escape velocity in physics is the minimum velocity one needs to escape the gravitational influence of another larger body, like a planet, to leave orbit. And it's a metaphor that I've used, and it came up in my conversation with Noel Free, who was on the podcast a couple episodes ago. As the minimum conditions, one needs to significantly change his or her reality. This is, this is different than you know incremental goals and improvements. I want to get 10% better at this, or I would like to you know have this be a little bit more or whatever. You know, this is like, I'm experiencing this and I want to experience something totally new. This type of intention or desire, I think, tends to come up with those big, meaningful things. Or, or, you know, one category would be like problems where maybe you feel like uh, despite your best efforts, nothing's really changing. You know, uh, maybe you're going to the gym and you're not really getting to shape or some resistances come up with your creative goals or you're working really hard to change your financial situation, but like it kind of feels like you're just shuffling things around. It's kind of like you're stuck in orbit of a planet where you are moving, but you're not really getting anywhere or you're, you're kind of cycling through. You're kind of still affected by, you know, what we could call a gravitational force of something, right? There's that. And, you know, this is a timely, uh, timely episode. I decided to put this out now because we're in a new year, which even though it's an arbitrary point in the Earth's revolution around the sun, all of us, including myself, uh, can't help but assign some meaning to this changing of 2021 to 2022. And whether you're the type or not to set New Year's resolutions, it's normal to ponder, okay, what can this calendar year look like? Um, what might I want to change? What might I want to do new? And then for myself, you know, uh, I have various life changes, the big one being uh, expecting a child soon. But this year, different than other years, and this is kind of you know stemming from my dark night of the soul experience where I'm, I've just been moving away from tangible, concrete, uh, on-paper goals into kind of this realm of like, um, I know I want to experience something new and maybe bigger, but I, I want it, I, like the, the level of fulfillment I want to experience from here on out, I want it to be so new that I wouldn't even know what tangible goals to set. Like I, I want to be in like in, I want to break into new territory where I can't just look back and be like oh, I want I want like ten percent more of this. So in this episode, we're going to be speaking about this idea of escape velocity, of breaking into a new world. Whether that means you know getting free of a recurring problem, or simply wanting to get into a new space where you're anything but the same old, same old. And this could apply to tangible goals, typically when it comes to some you know some blockage or problem. But also like the thing that the, the latter thing I mentioned of just wanting to get into a new set of experiences, explore new uncharted territory in your own life experience. This episode is essentially on rapid change. And just to be clear, uh, as far as our analogy goes, escape velocity are the conditions one needs to meet to significantly change your reality such that there's no backsliding. There's no falling back into orbit, no uh, going back into old patterns where you can essentially be, you know, out exploring new things, discovering new ways of being or new experiences and look back at the planet you came from. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that time that I was spinning in whatever pattern or cycle. Not to, not to even say it was a bad thing, but here I am exploring new worlds. So this episode's for you if you found yourself, um, maybe you are, you know, someone who sets a New Year's resolution and it's not the first time you set this resolution and you're maybe not so optimistic. I mean, I'm recording this now, uh, on New Year's Eve, but it's probably coming out a, a week later. So 
maybe some things, some habits have dropped off and this is something that you want to experience something new rather than, you know, putting in effort and experiencing the same thing. Or again, if you want to break into a, a basically a new reality. Right now, you're listening to episode Achieving Escape Velocity, How to Break Free of Old Patterns and Explore New Worlds. Happy New Year, everyone. Coming to you now from Copenhagen. Just moved into a new home uh, after about a month of searching for the place where where Nalai and I will settle and have our child finally found it. There's some echo in this office and there's probably new bugs, new, uh, you know, you probably wouldn't recognize it unless you're a bug expert, but the bugs in this part of Thailand sound a little bit different than the last part of Thailand I was in. I just went on a motorcycle trip with some buddies up in Northern Thailand. Part of it was to sell all of our stuff there. We had a lot of furniture and things. Uh, but it's also kind of a symbolic bachelor party for myself. Going up there with some guy friends, we rented motorcycles. We drove up to the Burmese border and drove along the mountains. Um, there's a mountain range that separates Thailand and Burma in the north. And we basically drove. It was it was beautiful. Like uh, we found some uh, tea villages. Um, my buddy Robin is a tea expert, um, and he was able to share with us all the all the things only tea snobs and tea geeks understand. It was fun. And it was actually, we, we discovered, or for me, I mean, he knew it was there, but I discovered a village um, in northern Thailand called Mae Salong, where it was like a very kind of quirky rural village where they had all of this, all of these murals up and of like, you know, people wearing military uniforms and, you know, didn't mean anything to us. You know, it's me and uh, the, the two guys uh, were Canadian. Um, but then we came across one mural that was this, you know, Asian man, and there was uh, some tanks and stuff, and then there was a Taiwanese flag, and we we're like, oh, Taiwan, interesting, uh, Taiwan here in northern Thailand, and it turns out that um, that village was largely settled by uh, Taiwanese refugees a couple of generations ago, um, the the Chinese fighters of uh, Chiang Kai Shek who were uh, fighting against the Red Army but failed, fled to Taiwan, and some of them fled further. Uh, into Thailand and settled this village. So it's very interesting because um, lately I've been very, everything I learn about the CCP makes me very anti, anti-China. Uh, yeah, whatever. I'm not going to get into that, but I was very happy to, to just be in a Taiwanese uh, village. That was cool. And when I got back, uh, it was kind of a bachelor party because when I got back on the 21st, I mentioned this in the Polarity Principles episode, Nalai and I had a private wedding. Uh, so she's now my wife. We might we might have a real wedding one day, but I consider us married. Uh, kids coming up uh, soon. Yeah. So anyway, lots of fun stuff. And uh, we just one one fun announcement uh, about the podcast because uh, if you subscribe to Spotify, uh, I think they do this for everyone. Uh, they send you your year wrapped. It's like a little like infographic thing showing you what you listen to and whatever. Um, for podcasters, they send you your podcast year wrapped. So they send you whatever stats. So one fun thing is um, the Rwando podcast listenership has grown by over 100% on Spotify. That number is a little bit misleading because I think a lot of people, for whatever reason, switched from listening on Apple to Spotify. Um, last year, a majority of the listeners were on Apple podcasts. Now a majority are on Spotify. I'm sure that has nothing to do with me. 
Um, so maybe our total numbers haven't grown by a hundred percent. Um, but the other, this other statistic, which was a lot more, um, meaningful to me, uh, was that Spotify notified me that uh, around a hundred people listen to almost every episode of this podcast, which was kind of like, you know, it was humbling and surprising and interesting. You know, a hundred is, you know, still a humble number. It's not a, you know, not a huge podcast by any means. But just the idea that a hundred people, um, most of whom I don't know, actually listen to every episode, and I'm sure, <laughs> I guess you guys are listening to it, uh, listening to this right now, made me think like, man, I got to really take this seriously. I can't let those hundred people down. Like, I can't, I can't uh, put out crap. Basically, I can't put in uh, like volume content um, because they're actually listening, and you know, I uh, don't want to, don't want to bore you guys. Um, so I'm grateful for that. And uh, of course, you know, if you are listening and you enjoy this episode and you can think of one person that you know that would get something out of this episode, it would mean a lot to me and hopefully to that person if you shared it directly to that person. All right, jumping in. So one reason why I love this analogy of escape velocity is that there's a lot of elements in the analogy that, uh, that we can draw, you know, from the physics and the physics imagery to psychological forces. And, you know, this idea, the first time I, I used this concept or, or first time it came to me was actually when I was back in the cult. Uh, this is maybe seven, eight years ago now or, or more. Yeah, maybe eight years ago. I was in the cult uh, and it was, you know, a cult is uh, what, what I define a cult as is an alternate reality that is different from conventional society or what we would call the real world. It's uh, if you caught my cult episodes I describe this a little in more detail. It's not like I was physically separate from regular society, but in my mind, I slowly became more and more separate. It it was a world. And I remember uh, this is maybe six or seven months into the cult experience. I was going in layer by layer. And there was a point where myself and another, and a young woman, uh, we were, we were both uh, recently hired to go in deeper. um, And we were discussing fairly lucidly of like, is this a good idea? I mean, because we, we could, we were at this uh, kind of uh, threshold point, if you will, where we could see, we could see uh, deeper into the cult than we, you know, than one could see on the outside. We could see the inner workings. We could see some of the manipulations. It was obvious from our vantage point that it was a cult, and it did change people's minds very drastically. But from that point, you know, we still we were we were both in our early twenties. We we're having a lot of fun in this world. We've had a, you know, great benefits to our growth, but also in, you know, entertainment and enjoyment. And, uh, we were like, oh, is it a good idea or not? And we were noting how we could see what was scary about going into the cult world was not the going in part. Cause in the, in the going in, you know, you have access to more information, you know, more opportunities for growth, more experiences. That was all fun. What was scary is, once you were in, it seemed like people couldn't really leave because we would see people who were deeper in the cult who, you know, in, in some ways we might look up to because they had access to what we perceived as wisdom and was wisdom at the time. Um, and they were leaders in this community and whatnot. But it seemed like they had become so detached from the old world that one, they, they couldn't really go back. And the few that actually tried to leave and go leave the cult and go back into conventional society had a really hard time. It's like once you were in and, and the deeper you were in, the harder it was to get out. So I remember, uh, you know, she and I were discussing this because there was this one person that we knew. I, we saw a few of these over the time period, but 
One person in particular was trying to leave, and it seemed like every time she tried to leave, she would like basically get sucked back into orbit and then crash back onto the planet of one taste, right? Obviously, using this metaphorically. And this is where I first came up with the idea because we, when we did see a very rare occurrence of someone who was able to break free of one taste after being very deep in, one, they, no one ever had a heart, never, no one had an easy time leaving. Like there was a lot of force you had to overcome. And the person had to like achieve this like level of sanity or like this level of groundedness and sureness in their reality that they had, that they could overcome the forces, all of the social forces that were there. And this is where I thought of the idea of like, oh, it's kind of like escape velocity. Like you need a certain amount of, you have a certain amount of kinetic energy you need to break free of the orbit. So one term within this analogy that's important um, is the idea of a world. So in our common parlance, most of us, you know, when we think of the word world, it's synonymous with the planet Earth. But actually what world means is it's the bounded reality in which you could freely move. So the reason why most of us think of world being synonymous with Earth is that, you know, for a, a human being who can physically walk, you should be able, your world should be the planet Earth where you can just move freely. And in some cases that is, but in many cases that's not, right? Like um, you actually can't just walk across the border of countries. Uh, if you're a citizen of the United States, for the most part, your world where you can freely move are the, are the boundaries of the United States, right? And there's even restricted zones within it. And there's places you can't go at certain times or there's certain things you, you have to do to go certain places. So the, the world is, is the spatial boundaries. It's also the time boundaries. It's also the rules. You know, if you want to go from U.S. to Canada, you can do that. You know, that you can say Canada is part of your world as well. Or, you know, um, but you have to follow the rules of uh, crossing borders, right? Um, if you're playing you know, for, a di for a different kind of uh, set of boundaries, if you're playing a game of chess, for instance, for the time that you choose to play the game of chess, that is your world, right? It's the eight by eight uh, board. Um, it's the amount of time that you're playing if there's it's a time game. But it's also the rules too, just like passport rules. There's rules of chess. And if you uh, break the rules of chess, you're no longer in the world. You can't be in the world and, uh, and break the rules because otherwise you're not in the world, right? Uh, th this idea of world is coming from um, James Carse, author of Finite, Finite and Infinite Games, my favorite book. Um, and I think this is you know, just a useful uh, way, way of re recognizing bounds of reality, right? Uh, chess, you could play any, any game, anything that we call a game, a sporting game, you know, uh, it's bound by a field, it's sparse, bound uh, by rules, it's bound by time. You break those, you're free. I mean, to go back to the, the nation example, you know, we have this term first world, uh, first world being all of the developed countries. And, you know, if you are a citizen of the first world, you can basically freely move uh, through most of the world. I mean, you, I mean, if you're a citizen of the US, you can, uh, if you follow the rules, you can go to Europe, you can go to pretty much any uh, developed nation. If you're part of the third world, if you live if you're a citizen of a third world country, your uh, chances are your ability to move freely are less. Not, not always, but it depends on various other status things, right? Like a, a first world citizen can, can go to a third world country, but he's still part of the first world, right? He has free movement in a way that maybe a third world citizen can't. And, you know, you know, I mean, obviously there's other nuances, like you could be a very wealthy third world citizen, in which case you're kind of part of the first world as well, right? 
And actually, one uh, interesting but also sad thing I, I learned somewhat recently is um, when I was up um, in Chiang, the Chiang Rai area, we were up there uh, taking a vacation, but also exploring farms for um, what became our Kudra business, uh, our herbal adaptogen business. I was training in jujitsu up there at uh, Chiang Rai uh, CRT gym, Chiang Rai Jiu-Jitsu. Um, and they have a great program, so shout out to them, uh, where they uh, basically sponsor orphans. Because something I, I only learned while I was there is that um, there's basically uh, peoples in northern Thailand and in, in, in surrounding regions where uh, they're not citizens of Thailand, right? Uh, there's peoples known as the Hill Tribe peoples. Um, some of them have integrated into Thailand, uh, into the world of the Thai nation, but some haven't. And it, it's worst for orphans whose parents were not Thai citizens, even though they were born in Thailand and maybe their parents and their parents' parents were born in Thailand. But because they, you know, no one in their family basically opted in to the Thai system, and I, and I don't know exactly the details, these orphans basically have no citizenship, which means they can't go to school. They can't, um, they can't do a lot of things. They can't drive a car. They can't leave their province even because there's border checks. And if you don't have a, a Thai national ID or a passport, you can't even leave the province. So for these kids, their world is super tiny. Um, and actually, you know, one of the reasons why I'm shouting out this jujitsu program, um, is that they offer a way for these kids who basically have a real, or they're bound to this really tiny world and this really uh, restrictive rule set uh, set by the government. If they can get good at jujitsu, they can get a sports scholarship to university. Uh, they can get a, uh, they can get not even a passport. They can get an ID card so they can simply leave the city or province they were born in. Um, so we actually decided at Kudra to donate ten percent of our profits to this program. So if you do uh, you do purchase a bag of Kudra, ten percent of your money is helping out these kids expand their world. Yeah. Anyway, that's at drinkkudra.com if you're interested. But as far as the worlds that we live in psychologically, there are two types of bounds to our world. There are the external def defined definitions, um, like uh, the rules of society or the rules of a game if you're playing a game. But if we're talking about the game of life, typically we're talking about uh, laws, rules of society, but also implied rules such as social norms, um, other social forces, uh, whether you get shamed for a certain set of actions, basically like these social constructions of reality that also bind free movement in a sense. Now, with a lot of these things, actually with all external bounds, they only really shrink our world when they eventually affect some sort of in internal binding of, of a reality, right? So these are your perceptions of what you can and can't do, both uh, as far as uh, being allowed to, but also your abilities, right? Like if you're, say, really low in confidence, you've, in a sense, shrunk in your perceived world of what you are able to do. Um, if you're a shy person versus a socially confident person, you know, even though, you know, you and the, or, you know, a confident person, a shy person can be in the same exact environment, the confident person obviously has a lot more free movement in the space of what, uh, he is able to do as opposed to the shy person whose world is a little bit shrunken because of his or her perceptions. Now, when it comes to a lot of these um, internally internal binds on our world, uh, there's another more common physics analogy that people use all the time, which is inertia. In physics, inertia, it, you may have heard of it as um, objects at rest tend to stay at rest. Objects in motion tend to stay in motion. The actual definition is Inertia is resistance to acceleration, right? It's uh, any body 
moving at any speed is going to try to stay at that speed or, or specifically stay at that velocity. Actually, I might be mixing up speed and velocity. I can actually hear my, my, my dad is, my dad was a physicist and I can hear his voice, uh, in my head right now. I mean, he's still alive. He's just not a physicist anymore, but I remember him, uh, at various times correcting me the difference between speed and velocity, velocity being a vector, speed being a scalar. Anyway, that means nothing to anybody, probably. So we have, as far as psychological inertia, we have a resistance to changing speed, right? And that's what, that's what is felt. I mean, to bring us back into, into, you know, physical reality. You know, I just mentioned I was on a motorcycle trip. The thing that you feel when you're on a, a performance vehicle or, or any vehicle is acceleration, speed you don't actually feel. And I actually learned from one of my buddies that it's, uh, as far as driving a motorcycle, and it's probably true for sports cars as well. Sometimes it's a lot more fun to stay in lower gear because even though you can't hit uh, the highest top speed, uh, you get a lot more power as far as the, as far as acceleration goes, um, and it feels it feels a lot more thrilling to go from uh, forty to sixty really fast at really high uh, acceleration as opposed to being at ninety at, at constant speed. Right? There's a different thrill with going just at high velocity, but acceleration is what we feel. Acceleration is what. Uh, physical body resists. And uh, psychologically, it's what, as far as uh, reality change goes, inertia is this kind of resistance. Now, returning to our greater analogy of escape, escape velocity, you know, escaping the planet, the world, uh, what keeps us in orbit is this force of gravity. Um, now, fun thing with uh, the words in this analogy Gravity, you know, of course, is uh, the attraction of, of mass to, it, to each other. It's what, what pulls an apple to the earth, as Isaac Newton uh, discovered or, or um, yeah, named. But actually, the word gravity existed long before Newton used it to describe this force. Gravity in English uh, means or meant prior to this and still does, but it doesn't, isn't used that often, uh, seriousness, right? As in something being grave. Uh, Newton found this to be a, a good word for describing this force of like when things um, are heavy, when things are brought to the earth, they feel serious, right? There's like a, a serious feeling, right? There's uh the, the feeling is, I mean, essentially Newton was using the, the divisive metaphor to use this word gravity to describe this force. So psychological gravity is the seriousness of our perceptions. How much uh, a given idea weighs us down and actually affects us, how much it, it affects uh, the, the path of our movements. Um, a simple example, it's kind of benign, but I think it does illustrate uh, as far as the, the gravity of social perceptions. On this mo motorcycle trip that I, that I keep mentioning, um, for part of the trip, uh, it was three of us who are, are about the same age, similar, uh, similar places, similar values in life. And there's one guy who's um, a little bit younger than us. Uh, he's kind of we got kind of have this like big brothers, little brothers vibe. He's he's very cool, but he, you know he's just from a different uh, different life situation. He's also half Thai, and uh, so he's a lot more affected by Thai culture than the the rest of us, right? And one of these things, and that's very common here in Thailand, is this like kind of collectivist culture of signaling that you're down down with the whatever the collectivist uh, idea is. And it's become very apparent since the pandemic because, you know, it, it's very common here in Thailand to see people driving by themselves in a car with their mask on. 
and we, you know, we, we tease our, our friend about it. Um, but he's just, I mean, he kind of matter of factly is like, Oh, it's to let everyone know that I, I mean, I'm not a rebel essentially. And it was even to the point where, um, this one night we were in, uh, in Chiang Rai, we went out to the bars, uh, and, you know, hanging with us, he wouldn't have a mask on because we would tease him. And it's also, uh, silly, you know, we were sharing a lot of space anyway, but the moment a Thai person would walk by on the street, or if you'd walk into a, a bar that had a Thai person, he put his mask on, right? Not for any health reasons, right? And, and I'm not arguing the, the health benefits of masks or no masks. The point is that it was completely a social perception or a social, it was a belief that this is what you have to do. It's important to do this thing. Whereas from us from the outside, it doesn't seem that way. To him, the gravity of this meme is very high. To us, it was like, it was so low that it, it seemed ridiculous. And, you know, we, I kind of joked because, you know, I've been on this brainwashing kick for a while that in order to overcome this perception in him, he probably would have to spend many, many hours with us uh, and, and no hours with uh, Thai people. Like it would actually be, it would come down to time. And that would be the only way. It would be kind of like um, moving him a little bit further away from the planet of, of Thai culture and a little bit closer to our culture, right? That would be the only way to change the gravity of his perceptions because to him, it's very serious. To us, it's not very serious. You know, in, in, in one taste, which was a totally socially, con a, you know, a different world, uh, totally on a social perception level, you know, this, this analogy also flushed out in that uh, the, the deeper you were in, just like in, uh, with gravity, uh, physics gravity, the closer you are to the center of the mass, the greater the gravitational pull. It was like that going into one taste where, um, you know, on the outside, you know, there was, it was kind of interesting. It was kind of compelling, but I kind of felt like I could leave at any point. But the more and more I got in, the more, like the stronger and stronger that force was to the point where like at some point I was accelerating so fast that it was, it was very difficult to leave, right? The deeper you got in, the, the much harder it was to achieve escape velocity. Um, this is true with uh, propaganda, which I'm going to be discussing in probably the next episode uh, on semantic consciousness, um, with any kind of uh, you know social change, but also um, the closer you are to any kind of influencing force, the more it affects you, right? And I mentioned this in other episodes where when I'm speaking to a guy who's kind of stuck in old patterns, even though his interests and his intentions are in, in one way and he's always hanging out with the same people, or maybe he never left his small town. The thing, I'm like, listen, you can receive coaching, you can read all the books, you can take all the courses, but dude, the thing you need is to leave your town. Like if you simply leave the, that, that all of those influences, it'll be so much easier to freely move because all of those forces are affecting you. Like the mind is very plastic. We are, we are very influ, uh, easily, it's very easy to influence the mind. We have a lot less control over our perceptions than we like to think, which is, again, uh, a subject I'll go deeper into in next episode. So this, this first, the first principle of achieving escape velocity would be to reduce the pull of the gravitational forces keeping you in the world you're in, you know, keeping you in orbit. And uh, instead of gravity, where you're seeking levity, right? Instead of uh, seeing these forces as serious and things that, Maybe, maybe cannot be uh, questioned. Like, like for instance, um, in this same example, my friend doesn't even, uh, my young friend doesn't even question the idea that one should wear a mask when another Thai person is around, right? It's, it's like so serious, right? In the same way that someone who 
is so serious in a video game feels like they have to accomplish this mission you know from the outside you're like dude you know you're why are you getting stressed out over grand theft auto it's not that big a deal right like you know it, it's uh you know it's not that you should never take things seriously or that you should you know throw your middle finger up at every rule it's recognizing that it is arbitrary and you have choice in how seriously you take a perception and we're talking about these gravitational forces i mean as we mentioned there's two there's two uh things that bind your reality the two types of binds there's the externally defined and the internally defined so externally they're essentially rules set by some some body whether it's something as small as these are the rules of chess we're playing chess if you want to play chess you have to fi- follow these rules or society and this is not an argument for anarchy by any means i want to be clear but just recognizing that all of the laws the lines on the map um, all the things that you know these authority figures say you have to do, they are in a sense arbitrary. And not to say that you, sh- th- I mean, I'm I'm in favor of there being some sorts of institutions and uh, legal system, of course. Like I'm not I'm not a f- you know I'm interested in some anarchistic ideas, but I'm I'm not an anarchist. But when someone feels that they are bound by something external and they have no choice. It helps to recognize, or it helps to introduce a little levity of recognizing that you always are choosing whether or not to take something seriously. And, and that in itself can like take away the shackles in a sense that, that occur in a lot of people's minds of like, oh, I just can't, I can't do this. I can't do this because I'm not allowed. An extreme example of this uh, is on the first page of my favorite novel, Shantaram. I've mentioned this in another episode before. I think it's very pertinent here. There's the, this opening scene where he's chained to the wall in an Indian jail cell and he's being beaten and he's got infected sores and he's basically the opposite of physically free. Like his, his world is very small in, in that sense. But he recognizes that in himself. And, you know, of course, this is an extreme view, but it, there's truth to it that in himself, he always has the choice of whether or not to hate his captors. I think he is, I mean, it's kind of like a choice between hate and love in that moment, which, you know, again, extreme, maybe hallmarky, but also like when you think about that, it's a very freeing thought of like, no matter what's going on outside, you do have freedom of how you choose to perceive things, of how serious you choose to take something. Um, and if, if, if this guy can do this in a jail cell and is based on a true story, then with a lot of the things that maybe it's easy to complain about, uh, external things, or even, per, you know, in a sense, external perceptions that have become internalized, like how you're affected by social norms or the influence of a, a childhood experience or something. You do have a choice. And in that sense, that in, in, in itself, that is, is a very powerful just idea to remind yourself of. The second type of binds are those internal ones. In fact, all of those external uh, bounds on reality only really affect you when you let them become internalized, right? Um, like when they become like when the influence of uh, a parent or teacher or childhood experience ends up becoming a, a tendency that continues on into adult life, right? It, it might not be so easy to just snap your fingers and change your reaction when it comes to uh, uh, whatever the thing is, right? Maybe you have a weird relationship to money because of something that happened when you were young regarding the things you wanted or... Um, you have a reaction to whether or not people like you or, or, or whether, um, whether, you know, how you behave in dating situations or things like that. It might not be so easy to snap your fingers and just change it all, but also recognizing that you, 
don't have to identify with that, right? You can kind of look at it from a third person perspective. Okay. It's like, okay, there's this program that exists. Programs, it was programmed into this person that I am, but programs can also be unprogrammed or reprogrammed or new programs can be put in. Like that in itself, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a, in a sense, a, a form of positive thinking, but one that I think is a little more actionable of like, just like whatever things can be wired into me, they can also, new things can be wired into me, which is, uh, in, in another way of, it's another way of in, in introducing optimism. And a second way to change those, uh, those tendencies, uh, come down to actual action, right? Like once you've identified, okay, these are the forces that seem to, to bind my experience. Uh, these are maybe the tendencies that I've internalized. One way to change it is to change your actions. And this idea of escape velocity and really changing, you know, it made me think of, uh, some experiences with 12 step, uh, that I, that I've had briefly and that I'm aware of from other people. One thing that I, I've always found interesting by people who are in 12 step recovery for some sort of addictive behavior was that they take this, they take essentially what is a habit, which is say abstaining from the substance of their choice so seriously that there's very little margin forever. And even though, you know, I, I've, I've never been a substance addict, uh, per se, I found this idea very interesting from kind of like, um, a creativity perspective or, or a creation of life perspective in that what if you felt that there was no margin for error in what you did, right? Where like, you know, not an ounce of attention could be wasted, not, not a second of the day uh, could be, you know, spent on other things. Like what if you treated things like that, whether it was true or not, but if you did, if you took every single like spare ounce of of uh, creative capital of of in, of intangible resource and dedicated into something certainly that thing would take off right i mean it's kind of hard to not even not use you know this this physics metaphor uh analogy of like you know entering of taking off of you know if you focus every ounce of what you had on a thing of course something would change and and even though in on a practical level i am a little bit critical of 12 step and and how in a sense, it binds someone into a new world where they kind of have lack of freedom. I've talked about this in other episodes. I do like this idea of no margin for error, which brings us into the, the next, um, the next idea, which is, um, accumulating energy. And actually, first I want to read a quote, uh, from Jung's Red Book. Uh, it's been one of the, I'm like reading like six or seven books on rotation. So I don't know when I'll finish any of them. One is the Red Book. But this is a quote that I, I underlined. Uh, and, and Jung's Red Book, if you don't know, is, um, it started off kind of as his journal entries of him exploring his own unconscious. And it's kind of like his dialogue with his inner daemon and whatnot. So a lot of this is kind of like somewhat channeled. And the thing that he wrote that I underlined is succumb to no temptation, but do everything of your own will. That was kind of a prescription that he received from his higher self or his daemon. Succumb to no temptation, but do everything of your own will. This reminds me of this idea of like, you are not letting any other force, whether internally driven or externally driven, pull you away from actually what you want, from your will, from the direction you're trying to go. Which, you know, going back to our analogy, what is required to achieve escape velocity? Well, you need to accumulate enough energy. Like you need to achieve that velocity, you need enough kinetic energy to overcome the force of gravity. So what does it mean to accumulate energy in a, in a psychological sense? I would say that is the feeling of aliveness, 
Um, and actually, again, I, and I keep mentioning this motorcycle trip, but it was, it was impactful on me in, in different ways. There was a, a point where, you know, we had been on the road for a few days. We had drank a lot of good tea. We've had a lot of great conversation. Basically wasn't on a phone for four days, which was amazing out in nature. And there was a point, um, towards the end of the trip where we had stopped uh, at a rest stop and I felt like this buzz in, I don't know how to, yeah, I guess I'll call it a buzz or this tingle in my body that was subtle and it, it felt good and exhilarating, but also almost too much. Like I think what I said to my friends was, I feel uncomfortably alive. I, it was like, I was like feeling too much stuff. And, and I noticed in that while it felt good, there's a part of me that wanted to do something to bring the energy down. Like I kind of wanted to be on my phone or eat sugar or jerk off. Actually, it wasn't like I wasn't horny, but I had this like, man, I've, I could really take the edge off if I just like, you know, it was that, that kind of feeling of like too muchness. I was already thinking about this idea of escape velocity. It was like, man, imagine what it would be like to have five times more of this kind of feeling, right? It would be really uncomfortable, but something would have to happen, right? Because everything was heightened. My sensations were heightened. My thoughts were like, were all kind of loud. Like it was like a lot. And it's, um, you know, this idea of like, if you accumulated enough energy, well, first to enter a new world, to escape, uh, to escape a, a gravitational orbit, you need a lot of energy, right? So this in itself sh should be a goal uh, to achieve escape velocity, which is accumulating more and more energy. And this can be done through quality driven habits. Because the idea of, you know, consistency and developing habits, atomic habits, tiny habits, uh, you know, this is kind of self-help 101. And I've talked about um, uh, the idea of process goals for, versus outcome goals for my friend Alex Hayne. Um, you know, outcome goals being, you know, trying to get some extrinsic results, but process goals being just having the goal of like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to control my inputs. And there's something of, of course, I think that's a useful idea, right? It's better than being hung up on these far off reaching things that are maybe outside of your control. I was actually thinking about this more, and I think in the process of accumulating energy, of accumulating this subjective feeling of aliveness, um, and energy actually, uh, in the sense, and we can even bring this back to physics, if energy is the capacity to do work, like the more you feel this this goodness inside you, or this this I don't even know, yeah, this aliveness inside you, the more you can do, right? Like when you don't feel this aliveness, you're apathetic, right? Uh, you're kind of maybe indifferent to everything. But I was thinking about this idea of habits, right? I, I mean, uh, of course, it's good to have good habits. I, I believe in having good habits. My habits have changed uh, from here and there. And I went to, into this more in the Solving Ambition Acceptance Dilemma episode. Uh, it's, you know, it's very possible to set process goals that lead to some desired outcome in a way that kind of reduces your sense of good feelings, of aliveness. And I, you know, I've talked about, um, you know, I've set fitness goals that ended up hurting my body because I wasn't recognizing to the moment to moment thing. Right. And, and I think, you know, in, on further thought, there are three stages of habits when it comes to accumulating energy. And I think in the first stage, which is probably most often talked about, this is kind of the, uh, is, you just have to do, do something to overcome resistance. Like resistance is the, is the enemy as uh, Stephen Pressfield uh, speaks about in the first third of the war of art. Um, and in that sense, just doing something minimal consistently is, is what you're supposed to do. Cause all you're trying to do is uh, fight resistance. You know, it's like BJ Fogg's idea of uh, committing to flossing one tooth. It's so easy. 
it's impossible not to do it, or it's very unlikely. Uh, you're, you're, you'll, you won't need a lot of willpower. And chances are, once you start doing it, you'll end up flossing more teeth, maybe get into the habit naturally of flossing your teeth all the time. With, uh, with writing, you know, Tim Ferriss has talked about, you know, just writing one sentence a day. Like, how could you not write one sentence? You just commit to that, you'll end up writing a lot more over time, et cetera. But then there's like the, the level of like, where you're no longer bound by resistance, and then it gets into just like creating more volume. Uh, how do you how do you get the most volume in? And um, you know, I think uh, I really like the you know, we're going to make a fitness analogy now of volume training versus intensity training. This is kind of a debate. It's been an ongoing debate in the, in the physical culture world for a long time. Intensity training being uh, going hard, uh, typically training till failure, going for the heaviest weights possible. And the idea is, you know, it's the most bang for your buck if you lift heavy. Uh, volume training being, uh, you're not going to tr- uh, failure. You're not trying to do the hardest thing possible, but you're trying to get in a lot of reps over time, which maybe means taking a lot of breaks. I, of course, uh, especially uh, subscribing to kettlebell philosophy and more on the volume training side, because you don't necessarily want to train till failure when it comes to like developing a habit. Uh, if you go to the point where you feel like you can't do anymore, which in terms of like a typical non-fiscal habit would be maintaining interest. If you do something so hard that you're not eager to do it again, well, then you're kind of doing yourself a disservice in the long term. Because in order to accumulate this energy, you need to get a lot of reps in, essentially. You need to maintain your interest because interest is essentially indicative of the energy that your mind is experiencing, essentially. Also in the fitness world, um, when it comes to volume training, intensity training, there are two kinds of mass one could build when it comes to muscle mass. Intensity training is typically favored by bodybuilders because um, training till failure, for instance, helps build sarcoplasm in in the muscles, which is a fluid that uh, inflates the muscles and makes them look bigger, essentially show muscles. Whereas volume training in this way uh, develops what's known as myofibular mass, myofibular mass, which is the actual contractile fibers, which is the part of the muscle that actually does the work, right? We're talking about energy is the ability to do work. This is the part that's important. This kind of physical training doesn't allow for fast gains because this kind of muscle uh, tissue is a lot harder to grow, but it does, you know, so it's not fast gains, but it's also not fast losses, right? Like bodybuilders can never maintain peak condition all year because it's actually impossible to maintain that, that amount of sarcoplasmic mass among, among other things. Um, whereas myofibular mass, once you develop that, it, it, your body doesn't give it up very easily, right? So bringing this back to the whole psychological experience and your experience of life and changing your reality, going for volume or just trying to, you know, finding a process where you can consistently increase your sense of aliveness is the best way to accumulate energy. So first is overcoming resistance, then it's increasing volume, essentially creating a a high volume habit. But then there's a third stage, which I think I'm only recognizing that even exists and that I should be moving into now with certain uh, certain processes uh, that I, I have in my life, which is is not you know like well, I'll speak about like my creative output. I don't have resistance to like sketching a podcast or or, or writing. Like these are things that you know they've been ingrained in me so much that it actually just feels good to do them. The thing that I've noticed at, at where I, where I'm at with these kinds of things because my my creative output is essentially um, the input when it comes to almost all of my, you know, certainly all of my career goals. Um, it's not just about quantity anymore. It's about quality, right? Like f- for the past many years, 
I can easily commit to sitting down and writing for two plus hours a day. It's the stuff that I put out though, isn't always stuff I feel good about. So there's one perspective of like, Oh, you can't really control that. You can't really control creative quality. You know, you just create a lot of stuff and something will be good. And I think that's fine. It's, it's a, that's a good perspective if you're, if you're tempted to not even try. But I've been trying to think, you know, especially also shifting my attention from tangible things or quantifiable goals to like a certain experience I care. Like, you know, I spoke about in the Dark Night of the Soul episode. I'm kind of changing my religion for, from optimizing for productivity to optimizing for presence. So what does this mean as far as accumulating energy, right? If I'm not trying to accumulate energy to like necessarily do more things, uh, but experience more quality. And, and for myself, when it comes to creativity, for instance, it seems to be uh, what can allow... Yeah, kind of going back to what can allow me to feel the most alive before I even do such and such work. Like I don't have any goals of like, I'm going to write cer- a certain amount anymore because I don't have resistance there anymore. Kind of what I, what I mean, what I've been tracking and, and I'll share, this is not a prescription for what anyone else should do, but what, I, what I've, what I'm kind of playing with, I should say, of how to optimize my energy so that I can have an output of quality that I feel good about are some uh, simple practices of, uh, and it actually comes from a book, um, another one of my favorite fictional books called Jitterbug Perfume. In that book, um, it's a comedic, comedic philosophical book by Tom Robbins where um, a few of the characters are trying to live forever. And they learn from these uh, Indian mystics who live in some cave uh, deep in India of these basically practices to balance out their four elements, uh, earth, air, fire, water. So, I mean, I'm looking at it symbolically. Obviously, it's not a real prescription of how to live forever, but it is based on on something. It is allude to something. So, I've actually, the the thing that I've been tracking, and, I, and I've, I've tracked habits you know, for a very long time, right? Like, uh, I was one of the first uh, coaches on the Coach Me app, um, which is basically a habit tracker app. Uh, I'm, I'm into that stuff. I think it's good for some some part of your life. But what I've been doing is tr- simply tracking things that affect different parts of my energy in accordance with these four categories. Um, so I'm just going to share what, I, what I've been doing recently. This is not to say that anyone else should do this, but this is something that seems to um, lead to good quality of mind and feeling, which is, me, which is what I've identified is the type of energy I need to accumulate to break into a new reality. So for air, air applies to mind and breath which are related, of course, um, which is why every meditative practice uh, has some focus on breath. And it just it's a common thing. If someone's freaking out, you tell them to breathe because it's, it's hard to have a conscious, be conscious of your breath and have uh, spastic thoughts at the same time. So in, in the book, uh, they, they describe uh, basically a pranayama practice. For me, the thing that I try to do every day is... Um, spend some time reading or journaling while I'm doing it, I'm paying attention to my breath, which is another thing that is discussed in the archetype challenge. Uh, was one of the archetype challenge um, lessons to do active things with your mind while making sure you have some ambient attention, ensuring that you're breathing in a slow, natural way. Water, of course, is water, but also emotions is representative of that. In the book, Jitterbug Perfume, uh, the prescription is to take hot baths every day. For me, I, I've recognized I'm pretty much always dehydrated. So I, I've made, uh, I've made, um, it a daily, uh, habit to make sure I'm drinking, uh, actually specific herbal teas like Kudra and other herbs that I've gotten into every day. 
Um, fire is creativity and lovemaking. So this has been something that I've practiced on and off um, for many years anyway, which is arousal control. Uh, I, I do note every time uh, Nalai and I make love, and I do note whether or not I ejaculate. Um, because actually for each of these categories, it's the thing that I, I've noted can increase my energy and a thing that can decrease it. So actually for for air, it's reading and breathing, but the thing I don't want to do, the thing that kind of reduces my air energy, if you will, is being on my phone. Uh, so if I'm on my phone late at night, I give myself a black mark. If I made sure to read and breathe, I give myself a white mark. Sometimes I have both. Um, for for fluids, it's um, drinking something like Kudra, which is hydrating. And the black mark I give myself if I do something dehydrating, it's like drinking coffee or alcohol, which I still do sometimes, but I just mark it down. For fire, it's making love. And the black mark is if I ejaculate. Which I don't feel shame about if it happens, but you know I do. I do note it, and I. I mean, um, if you're on my email list, I'm actually going to send a, a little photo of what I do on the back of my journal, marking my my black and white marks for these categories. For the final category is Earth, which in the book is um, eating right food in small quantities. They they recommend fasting. Tom Robbins did spend a lot of time uh, actually in uh, basically doing spiritual things before he wrote comedic novels about them. And he was actually a friend of Timothy Leary in real life, who we've, of course, mentioned on this podcast. And in the book, Jitterbug Perfume, there's a character named Danny Boy Wiggs, which is kind of obviously based on Timothy Leary. So anyway, a bunch of trivia there. So for myself, Earth representing the body, um, I give myself a white mark if I uh, not only eat right, get my macros in, but I also do my basic mobility practice. And then the black mark is if I eat something like uh, artificial sugar. So... I don't have any hard um, thing, any hard proclamations like I'm going to never do this or only do this. But these are th- these are habits that I've recognized, both positive and negative habits, and I simply mark them on the back of my notebook. And it's been interesting just looking at looking at it like zoomed out. If I look at the last ten days, it's kind of obvious when I have more black marks than white marks. That day wasn't so great. <laughs> like my out, I mean, and if I had if I have consistent days of black marks. It's kind of obvious that I'm not going to achieve escape velocity. I'm certainly going to either stay in the same place or go backwards. Whereas, uh, you know, I haven't been on a, a streak where I've had only white marks more than like three or four days in a row. But I have noticed, you know, I do feel more alive. And perhaps if I, perhaps this is my commitment for 2022, which is to have some really long, like 10, 20, 30 day streaks where it's all white marks and no black marks. Uh, so we'll see. Maybe I'll, I'll report on that later. Because I think there's something also when it comes to that internal resistance of if you set your uh, metric for whether you're good or not uh, as something that you're ultimately going to fail in, you know, you know, you set the parameters for success. So it's foolish to tell yourself you're going to go to the gym every day when you know you're not, right? You know, I mean, give yourself the opportunity for the winner effect, uh, which is you know, just set you know, set yourself up in a game to win. This is something that's come up a lot um, with some of the younger guys I've been coaching lately. And I think, you know, this maybe is true for everyone in different stages of life, but I've noticed with a lot of people recently, it seems like they are um, measuring themselves up to an evaluation model that they don't even know where it comes from, but it's an evaluation model that always makes them wrong. Like I, I was coaching a guy who, um, uh, you know, he's going through stuff where he wants to be more socially free, like in dating, but also with, with people. And he has this internal narrative where uh, it seems like he's 
always finding something that he did socially wrong. And first, it's usually things that probably no one notices. And even if someone notices, it's not really a big deal. It's like, where did this come from that he's, he's judging himself from some external perspective, but he doesn't even know. Which brings us back to like, you know, this gravitational pull of like, um, uh, recognizing that all of these things, like nothing is serious. Anyways, so the first principle is, um, uh, recognizing your gravitational forces and basically taking the gravity out of them, introducing levity. The second one is finding uh, something you can do consistently, something you can do to that in high volume, because you need high volume to, to really make change that increases your aliveness at whatever stage you're in, whether it's simply trying to get over resistance or trying to get reach high volume or trying to uh, not only have high volume, but high quality. Because to really change, and we can even go to like very tangible things like the most common New Year's resolution, which is to get in shape. No one ever really gets in shape who wasn't in shape by, by doing minimal things. Like you kind of have to become obsessed. Uh, like the people who really, you know, there's lots of people who are the gym and kind of look the same all the time. And then there's people who basically become snobs about it. Like they become obsessive about it. And those people are the ones who are like, man, you look way different, right? Like they're the ones who are willing to go into kind of extremes beyond just doing the bare minimum of flossing one tooth. Because the thing is when you achieve a really high level of, uh, we could say energy, you accumulate a lot of energy, it's almost difficult not to escape or enter new worlds. You know, I, I, mean, uh, I didn't tell too many personal stories this time, uh, but the, the, the times in my life where I feel like I really broke into new worlds. And, and I've told, I mean, I'm not saying these stories because I've mentioned them in other podcasts like the road of trials, but there've been times where, you know, I was broke and I realized I had to do a certain thing. I had to do it over and over and over again. And eventually I made enough money to change my situation or, or one, uh, one with arousal control specifically. Actually, when I, when I first, um, the longest I've ever gone with, uh, basically, uh, experiencing sexual stimulation with myself or with women, and not ejaculating. I think I went on like a 90 day run of almost daily something. The only time I actually really committed to that was right before I put out my arousal control program because I wanted to see what was possible essentially. Like I had never gone, I think more than 30 days. And even that was where I think my, my more common streak was like two weeks or something of like, you know, making love every day without coming or something. Usually I would let myself off the hook, right? Cause I, that's actually, you know, one thing that keeps us uh, in old worlds is, and I'll speak for myself because I've noticed this uh, even recently, that when I'm on a streak of doing things that I said I was going to do, if like, oh yeah, I did all these you know good stuff, or you know, I ate the frog, I did the practice, I did whatever, often there's a point where I feel eager to spend my surplus because it's uncomfortable to to um. It's kind of like a mental trick or almost like an, an addict's mind trick of like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm ahead of the game. I can kind of uh, spend some of what I've accumulated. But of course, if you do that every time, it's like the Taurus of the hair. You have this head start, but eventually you lose the race. And with arousal control specifically, um, well, one, when I did that 90 day streak, I really felt alive. And, uh, and, and all I'll say, I mean, this is, I, I can't, uh, one to one say that, you know, the 90 day streak caused this to happen, but, that program was the biggest boost to my wealth that I had experienced on my own. 
right? Where I wasn't like working with a company or working with something like where I really did everything on my own. I'm not saying that, you know, not coming for 90 days made me maybe rich by any means, but there was something in that of how seriously I was taking every ounce of my attention that I was just seeing things differently. And I was, I, I was just, I was experiencing things differently because I was willing to ex- uh, basically accumulate that level of feelingness. And, and for another example, actually at that time, I put my, I put one, one, a couple of my clients, uh, through kind of like a beta run of that program before I released it to the public. And, uh, one guy, he, he was practicing it for, I don't know how long, but he was saying that he noticed when he really practiced arousal control, it was kind of like he couldn't kid himself anymore. It was like his emotions and his feelings had become so heightened, especially when it came to the things that he wanted that he couldn't lie to himself. It's like, uh, when it came to those uncomfortable desires of whatever he wanted in his maybe his relationship life or or his business life like he couldn't he couldn't use resistance excuses because the feeling was just so strong and that to me is like a great description of what it is to accumulate the energy required for escape velocity it's like you're feeling so much of what's true for you that those resistances that that previous gravitational force can't affect you which is why in addition to having positive accumulative habits, it's important to reduce uh, the the energy zapping habits, right? Like, uh, you know, a, a lot of the things that I've become very critical of, of recently, I mean, mainly social media and, and uh, technological influence, but also things like junk food and anything that uh, allows you to trade your feeling of aliveness for momentary pleasure is essentially a sedative, Right. I mean, if, you know, a kind of conspiratorial view on social media is that it's a way of controlling the masses and keeping the, keeping people in low velocity so that you stay wrapped up in someone else's orbit, whatever that social narrative is, as opposed to staying away from that stuff that zaps your attention and energy, accumulating as much energy as, as possible, and then seeing what comes out of you. Like, especially with this, the, where I'm at in life personally, where I don't have any glaring problems. But if I'm honest, like I don't feel super satisfied. Like I feel like there's something more I can do that I'm not totally sure. I am postulating that if I really accumulate a lot of energy, it'll force me to discover what that is. Which brings us to our final principle on on, uh, achieving escape velocity, which is seeking negentropy. I spoke about negentropy in the four and a half principles of a man's life uh, podcast some time ago. Negentropy being the opposite of entropy. Entropy, which you uh, may remember, uh, is defined as disorder. Um, but really, it's uh, it's uh, more than just disorder. Or actually, the way to describe disorder is that what describes um, a configuration as disorderly rather than orderly, or entropic rather than negentropic, is that it's interchangeable. It's a configuration where it's interchangeable with many other configurations. So, so for example. If you have a, a, a 300 pages of a novel ordered in the proper order where it actually makes sense from one to 300, that is a very low entropy configuration because of, out of all the different combinations you can put those 300 pages, there's only one that actually makes sense versus and the number is really big. It's 300 factorial ways where it doesn't make sense, right? 300 times 299 times 298, right? It's a really big number. I don't know what it is. Right. So it's, so to actually get it right, like if you, if you were to throw up the pages randomly, the odds of getting it exactly right, one to 300 are extremely low, which makes it a very, a very low entropy configuration, a very meaningful configuration. 
because it's not interchangeable with many other ways. So when it comes to our lives and low entropy in our lives, entropy essentially is commonness, right? Like if your mode of being is interchangeable with everyone else, well, that is a, that's a high entropy thing. You're basically, you're just one of the masses is meaningless, right? You're interchangeable with everything else. You know, there, there's infinite ways to be a bland person. There's infinite ways to just be an average Joe. There is only one way to be an individuated version of you. You know, and this is, you know, yeah, this is a bit of, you know, of, of uh, you are special, but you're only special if you actually exercise your specialness. If you individuate yourself so that you are highlighting the traits that are uniquely you. Because, you know, if you uh, allow yourself to be influenced by collectivist programming that says, we all should be the same and you should just get along with this group. And actually, the bigger the group, the bigger the group that's trying to be homogenized, the higher entropic it is, right? Because to find the lowest common denominator b- between two people is one thing. But to find the lowest common denominator amongst a million people, it's not going to be a very low denominator, right? Like it's going to be, uh, anyway, I know, I know I'm mixing math and science and fitness metaphors, but uh, and I am ad-libbing right now as well. But like individuation is trying to reduce the entropy of your expression as as greatly as possible, your personal uniqueness, which I think is something that kind of naturally happens when you reduce the influence of external gravitational forces, right? These external things that take you off your path or off your 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 otherwise uh, free-flowing expression, things that keep you trapped in in smaller bounds of a smaller world, as opposed to accumulating enough energy so that your feelings become so loud that they direct you into things, right? Your, your emotions become so heightened that you have no choice but to follow them. What one beautiful example that came from someone I was coaching earlier this year. This was a guy who basically was trapped by like mother complex, nice guy syndrome stuff for, for most of his life. And, you know, everything seemed fine. He was getting by, wasn't always fulfilled in relationships, but nothing was ever so bad. And everything, you know, everything he did in relationships with women were socially acceptable and status quo, even though he wasn't happy, really, he wasn't really fulfilled. Then he met someone who, she was kind of a crazy woman, but in many ways, uh, uh, in, I would say an angel in his life because she, uh, took advantage of all of his nice guy programming. Uh, she basically stomped on his heart and did all the things that, you know, yeah, all the things that are, 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 are undesirable. And, you know, it's caused him massive, massive pain. And it caused him, you know, you know, a kind of a, a desperate desire to change. And there's a, a, a few times in our early conversations where he was breaking down and crying with shame and pain. And, you know, every time I'd be like, good. Right. Cause the first couple of times he would apologize. Like, I don't know why I'm crying. I don't want to cry. It's like, no, no, no. This is good. Good. I want you to feel this pain. I'm glad you, you felt this pain because unlike all of the other years in your life, you've now finally experienced an acute enough pain that'll force you to change. There's the, uh, hopefully, you know, more pleasurable way you can accumulate enough energy to achieve escape velocity. But the other thing that it gives you that energy sometimes are problems. Most people enter an interest in personal development because of something unfortunate happening. Unfortunately, right? Like not a lot of people that I've met became, become super interested in developing themselves 
just because they want to go from pretty good to a little bit more good, right? Like it's pain that often gets us into this mode, which is, which is a fine, fine enough, uh, call to adventure. But that can, that only was able to happen because he allowed himself to feel what was true, right? He didn't judge it and he just felt the thing. And that, that feeling led him to a, a new reality where, uh, he's not bound by those, those problems before. Cause the truth is, even though he didn't realize how upset he was in those past relationships where, you know, he was just good enough to get by. He wasn't happy actually. Uh, and he, he was essentially sedated to not recognize how he wasn't really on the path he wants to be. Whereas this smack in the face, this stab in the chest helps him recognize like, Oh, Hey, this is not cool. I have to enter. I have to leave this planet and enter new worlds. And actually I brought this up uh, to him. And so I bring this up now uh, for this point on neg entropy. It's a quote by uh, Alistair Crowley that is often quoted by people who like Alistair Crowley, which is, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. This is kind of the basis of, uh, you know, Alistair Crowley was uh, uh, an esoteric mystic in uh, 19th century uh, Europe. Uh, and do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, even though, you know, it sounds kind of mystic. I mean, it is, it's come from, comes from him. Um is kind of the foundation of a lot of um, modern self-help of essentially respect what you actually want, right? Do it thou wilt, wilt being your, your actual individuated dreams and desires. And, uh, you know, this is something that we explore in the archetype challenge because it's one thing to set goals for things that have been externally defined. It's one, another thing to recognize your kind of unexplainable desires and imp- uh, your desires and interests, like things that, you know, it's not like, Oh, I like baseball because my dad liked baseball. It's like, I don't know. I, I like, I'm, I'm interested in this topic and I don't know where it came from. It's, it's almost like I was born with it. Like those are the things you want to explore the most because as far as we can tell, that is your nature, right? And, you know, and even down to traits, like heightening the traits that you happen to have, like owning the traits that you happen to have. There's so much freedom in that because the, you know, to finish the sentence, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. What binds people the most is this perception of laws that they did not create themselves, right? Uh, you know, it could be legal laws, but really we're talking mostly about social perception laws of like, oh, I can't do this or I'm not allowed to do this or it's, not, you know, I'm not, I won't be a good boy if I do such and such, as opposed to this is what I genuinely feel in me. And, you know, not like, not in a reactionary way not in a programmed way or a way to like be liked, but this is what I genuinely feel. And because I feel this way, it is the law. It is, it is the right and wrong that I will, I will assess my actions on, on whether or not I was being true to it. Obviously, you know, if you're, if you're somehow born with genuine feelings that, uh, are very antisocial, maybe I wouldn't, I wouldn't accept that that, that should be the law. Uh, like if you want to just go around being a serial killer, uh, yeah, I mean, that's certainly not the, I mean, well, anyway, we don't have to get into that. I'm being a little silly now. This statement is a description of being free from external forces. It's very similar to the, the Jung statement I read earlier, which is to succumb to no temptation and do everything uh, in accordance with, son, with one's own will. Uh, they were actually around, I believe, in the same time. So I don't know, maybe they traded notes back then. Because achieving true escape velocity, where achieving a true escape velocity in your life, means leaving the comfort of the familiar to discover new worlds. And leaving that comfort, I mean, the biggest thing that binds someone to a given reality, to a given orbit, 
is a fear of leaving the familiar of, uh, you know, uh, leaving the comfort of what you know is too scary for many, which is why, you know, when I recommend to a, a guy stuck in a small town where everyone's thinking small and kind of holding him, him back in a sense, uh, when, when I suggest to him the kind of obvious thing to leave the town and just explore, you could always come back, right? Go explore the world. When such a person says no, and a few guys have been like, ah, I can't do that. It's because even though they desire these big things, they're afraid to leave the familiar. And this is just a decision you have to make if you find yourself clutching comfort is that that is literally what it is to, to escape the orbit is to, to go out and discover the unknown and discover new worlds and see what exists that maybe you can't even plan for. And I think that's the most exciting thing. Um, like especially once you overcome like your acute problems, like maybe the thing that got you into this idea of creating your life actively. It's exciting. It is scary. It's also exciting to enter a space where it's so new and adventurous that you don't even know what goals to set. I mean, that's, that's kind of where I'm hoping to, to, to land. Like when I was thinking about, do I have any specific goals for 2022? Of course, there's something, you know, like I would like to save more money and I would like to be a good father for my new child and all, all those things that are you know, obvious and true for everyone. But really, like, there's no, there's no thing I want to acquire. There's no specific experience that, that I want. It's like, I, I know I just want the feeling of being in a new, in a heightened state that I haven't before. That's basically so new that I wouldn't even know how to set a tangible goal because it's, it's all of it's like, that's, that's personally what I want to experience. And the point of all of this, right? Is that if you really want to change something, when you achieve escape velocity, you still have freedom. You always have the freedom to go back to old worlds if you want. You can go back to your old town. You can go back to whatever way of being. You can give away your money or you can, whatever the thing is. I don't know. Uh, whatever your, your goal is, you can, you know, but when you've achieved escape velocity, you have choice. You're, you're basically in space on your own to discover new worlds, to do new things. And you can always look back and you look back and reminisce. You could always go back. But the point is you're free. You're no longer bound. Your trajectory, that was the word I was trying to think of earlier. I couldn't think of the word trajectory. Your trajectory is no longer controlled by something else, whether they're internal tendencies or forces or whatever. So I hope this episode has been useful on, on Escape Velocity. I, I mentioned a few things uh, just in case yeah, perhaps you're new to the podcast and you want to go back and, and listen. I mentioned the Ambition acceptance dilemma. Uh, that's kind of what it, what it sounds like. Uh, it's an episode from, I think, last June or so, where I'm describing, um, you know, basically whether you should go hard or not. Uh, around that time, also, I, another episode I mentioned was four and a half guiding principles for a man's life. It's something, uh, it's a symbol I've tattooed on my notebook. Um, one of my buddies has it too. Um, both of those episodes came after a four by four by 48 challenge we did inspired by David Goggins. Uh, other resources I mentioned are the Mask and Archetype Challenge. It is a 21-day program I created based in Jungian archetypes specifically to summon the testosterone-driven characteristics from your unconscious. Basically, uh, what it means to be really be a man for yourself that is lodged in your unconscious, not driven by culture or anyone else. There's some exercises uh, over a 21-day challenge to uncover that in you. And I also mentioned arousal control. It is uh, something I, I, yeah, I just believe is good for men to practice, uh, both for your sex life, but also for your emotional well-being. 
Um, I have a free training uh, on that at arousalcontrolsecrets.com. There's also a paid course if you want to do the advanced thing later. Um, but that's, yeah, that's there. So those are all the things. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Happy New Year, everybody. If you liked it, please share it with somebody. I'll see you in the next one. Goodbye.